Let's open our Bibles this morning to 2 Kings chapter 13. Kings obviously forms uh, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. These are books of history. This is where you get all those kings' names and, and which kingdom they were in. And uh, I had a, a buddy in Pennsylvania, and he was going through the, the Bethel Bible series, and he was challenged to memorize all the kings of all the kingdoms, both north and south, in order chronologically. And, and you know, the, the pastor was teaching a class, and he said, Frost, I don't think you can do this, but you go ahead and try. Like that. Well, Frost, Kerry, was uh, kind of a big brain lawyer, and so he took that on as just a challenge. He came back the next week. And did all the kings in order, both northern and southern kingdom. He pronounced all the names correctly. Now, that's the big challenge, I tell you what. Uh, but he did, he did a great job, and, and we just all you know, cheered for him. That was good. Um, so he's, he's in the next level of heaven, obviously, okay, if you can do that. All right, so let's, would you stand with me, and I'll read from 2 Kings 13. Uh, again, it's only a couple verses, and, and this is one of those passages that seems really bizarre, but yet it is here in God's inspired word for us. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to understand this passage, uh, not just in its context, but what it means in our lives. How are we to take this event and apply it today, that we might live lives of holiness, that we might live lives that demonstrate the things of Christ in all that we do? We ask this in his precious name. Amen. So 2 Kings chapter 13, uh, this will be verses 20 and 21. 20 and 21. And Elisha died, and they buried him. Now the bands of the Moabites would invade the land in the spring of the year. And as they were burying a man, behold, they saw a marauding band, and they cast the man into the grave of Elisha. And when the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Okay. What do we do with this one? <laughs> because if you look at it, it's just thrown in here. I mean, I'm mean, thrown in. I don't want to think that, I want you to think I believe that God is arbitrary or that, that this is just a, a copier's error or anything. This was an event uh, in, in, after Elisha had died, and this was a real event, and this happened. And here it is in God's inspired word, and it is for us today, some 3,000 years later. So what do we do with it? How do we understand this? I mean, this is much like the, the passage that we dealt with in Matthew at the opening of the tombs at the crucifixion and, and death of Christ. When all of a sudden the tombs opened and, and people came out and went into town. I thought you were dead. Well, yeah, I was, but... but. So here we have, it, it, its brevity gives us the sense that everybody saw it and everybody knew that it happened, so it was no big deal. They didn't have to elaborate on it. Now, the writer of Kings did not have to go into some explanation about it. Here it is, it happened, boom, it's a, it's a fact, and we move on. So that's what we have here. Now, the, Elisha, the prophet Elisha, you remember, he, was, he falls after Elijah, and he um, asked for 
uh, a double portion of Elijah's mantle, so to speak. And remember, we already dealt with one event in his life, the boys and the bears and, and, and that one. And here he has been serving the Lord for, he served the Lord for some 20 years, and then he's kind of on hold during the reign of King Jehu. Okay, not much is heard of Elisha for some period of time, and then a new king emerges after Jehu, and it's his son Jehoahaz. Uh, now, you don't have to remember all these names, okay, there will not be a test at the end. Jehoahaz, um, who did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, you were either marked one way or another as a king, both of the northern and southern kingdom. You either did, did what was good in the sight of the Lord, or you did evil in the sight of the Lord. So um, Jehoiahaz did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed this, the sins of Jeroboam and the others who went bad. So the Lord in his punishment for the nation at this time gives them into the hands of the Syrians. Now this was a nasty group, but this is what the Lord did. He said, hey, if you follow me, if you obey me, then I'll bless you. If you don't, I'm going to give you into the hands of your enemies as punishment and that is what is going on here augustine said the punishment for sin is sin if you want to pursue sin then the weight and and consequences of those sins will be their own punishment to you and that's what the lord has done so um because of the wickedness of the king uh, the syrians have come in they've pillaged israel israel's army is down to basically nothing again Okay, just down to a, a few uh, thousand foot soldiers, a couple chariots, uh, and a couple guys on horses, and that's it. And that's not really a fighting force to speak of. So in his desperation, Jehoahaz sees this, and in his desperation, he begins to pray to the Lord. And, that's, and we see this so often in, in the Old Testament. Here, they, they, they start out good. Then they seek the other gods, they abandon the Lord, then bad things start to happen, and then they turn to the Lord. You know, it's, it's like, oh, maybe, maybe we are being punished for not following the Lord. Maybe if I pray a little bit, maybe if I seek the Lord, he'll come and take care of these bad guys. Now, the really good ones, their hearts were broken before the Lord. And then other times we see those who simply pray because... I don't want to be overrun by the Syrians, okay? And that's kind of what is happening here. So in the Lord's compassion, he was, he was gracious to them, showed them concern. I mean, this is the covenant people, so he's, he's not going to let them be wiped out completely. Um, so there is a promise, a prophecy that is made to Joash, who is Jehoiah's son, okay? So the prophecy really deals with Joash, and even though we see it, I'll jump to the end, they were delivered, uh, they were having too much fun with the pagans. So they really didn't turn from their ways. Um, um, I think verse 6 here says it all. Nevertheless, they did not turn away from the sins of the house of Jeroboam. They didn't turn away from the sins. Um, so Israel needed, in a sense, a little bit of encouragement. Encouraged. Now, remember, Joash is not a godly king. Okay, none of these kings at this time really are anything special, anything, their hearts are not devoted to the Lord. But a prophecy is given by Elisha while he is dying. And the context seems to be clear that Joash was afraid that after Elisha's death, that the words that Elisha had spoken would no longer carry any power or authority. 
Okay, so he has Elisha has a prophecy while he's alive. He dies, and Joash goes, maybe this is no good anymore. Maybe this has no power now. Now that Elisha's dead, it may Joash may very well have reasoned that his words were dead as well. Well, along comes verse twenty-one. As they were burying a man, now it's not as if here is a grave that they had dug and um, they were going to put the guy in and bury him like we do. Often these were uh, cut into walls and more, more than one person was buried in the same um, niche, what was it? Sepulcher, something like that, okay? So it's not uncommon that one would, would be, act, be able to access uh, somebody else's grave. So the marauding, um, what, Moabites are coming through and they're afraid for their lives. So they take this guy and they don't finish cutting out or the whole ceremony. They just throw him in and go running off. And the guy hits the bones of Elisha and he gets up. Now, uh, it doesn't say what he thought. It, it doesn't say anything else about this guy it, through, through the rest of scripture. He just got up and was resurrected because he touched the bones of Elisha. So it is possible that this miracle is meant for Joash to buck him up, so to speak, and give him confidence, because I'm sure that word would have reached him that this dead guy touched the bones of Elisha the prophet, and he became alive again. So maybe Joash would think, well, Elisha's words still have power, even though he is dead. Okay? Now, we're going to take a little detour here. Well, before we do that, this is not, this is not um, the only place things like this happen. If you remember from Acts, um, Paul works and he takes his handkerchief and his apron and he is sweated on these things and people come and take them and they take them back, Acts chapter 19, and people are healed because of these material things that have been touched by Paul. Paul was an apostle. You, you can take my dirty Kleenexes if you want. I doubt it's going to have any healing power in your life. Okay? I'm not Paul. So, we're going to take a little detour here in something that I found this week that I thought really was a joke. But it's not. It is, a, it is what happens when sinful individuals take a passage like this from 2 Kings 13 and they run with it for their own glory and their own purposes okay they create a false doctrine and in this case you're going to find a, a after you stop laughing at it it's an abhorrent false doctrine okay now we think of this if you go to uh, mark the end of mark and you've got the you've got the snakes and that's where they get the guys that handle snakes they get this from one verse and they make an entire doctrine out of it that supersedes other things that is in error okay and what the people i'm going to share with you in a moment have done is is an error too. Okay, so people take it, and and they perceive that oh, you know, they'll look at this and go, you know what, the Lord has given me great insight. In fact, He's given me new revelation about how we are to apply this passage, and this is the way that people have done this in applying this in a false way. Based upon this passage, that's the dead man touching Elisha's bones, some people in, in two movements, theological movements in particular, one is called the word of faith and the other is called the third wave. Um, 
the word of faith movement is basically speaking things into existence, and, and you get a lot of people on TV, a lot of TV preachers are a word faith. Uh, the third wave is um, this group that the, the first wave would be Pentecostal, the second wave would be charismatic, the third wave would be a further uh, manifestation of the apostolic gifts in the world today. Um, if you've never heard of those, praise God, because we, we don't, I don't adhere to those. But they have founded a practice known as graves sucking. Grave sucking or mantle grabbing. Now, when I read this, I thought, oh, surely this is like from the onion or the, the Babylon Bee. You know, it's got to be satire or something like that. No, there's, there's pages and pages written about this stuff. Now, now let me give you the context for this. Uh, the guy from, from the Word Faith, and, and you'll probably know his name, and Benny Hinn, he writes about his experience at the grave of Amy Semple McPherson. Amy believed in um, physical healing, uh, slaying in the spirit, speaking in tongues, signs and wonders, evangelism, uh, and extra revelatory biblical information. That would mean that God gave her direct revelation in addition to what was in Scripture. And, and also, he says, there have been two experiences, one at, at the grave of Amy Semple McPherson and one at Catherine Coleman. Um, Catherine Coleman kind of... Uh, infused Christianity and spiritualism and pulp culture and money all together into one thing. And he writes about this. He says, one of the strangest experiences I had a few years ago was visiting Amy's tomb in California. I felt a terrific anointing. I was shaking all over. God's power came all over me. I believe the anointing has lingered over Amy's body. She's been dead for a long time. I've heard of people being healed when they visited the tomb. Many believers seeking to leap ahead on their path to becoming supernaturally awesome like me try to kick their... I don't want that to get past you. (laughs) Many believers seeking to leap ahead on their path to becoming supernaturally awesome like me try to kick their spiritual growth into high gear by leeching Holy Ghost power from the anointed dead. They do this by hugging tombstones or laying directly on graves in order to get close to the lifeless bodies of supercharged saints lying beneath them. Some are so determined to get ahead spiritually that they will do whatever it takes to get as close to the deceased as possible, removing all barriers and distance between them and the supernatural power they are trying to suck from the anointed dead. He goes on to write, It all seems fairly obvious, I know. But you'd be surprised how many people find it a little odd, even unorthodox. Uh, yes, yes, that would be true. Um, third wave leader Bill Johnson does the same thing. He, he went to John Lake's grave. John Lake was a, a Pentecostal leader and, and set up healing rooms and healing campaigns in, in, on the West Coast mostly. So he writes, Johnson writes, there are anointings and mantles revelations and mysteries that have lain unclaimed literally where they were left because the generation that walked in them never passed them on meaning the people died and he says they've never passed them on they never laid their hands and passed on that mantle i believe it's possible for us to recover realms of anointing realms of insight realms of god that have been intended for decades simply by choosing to reclaim them and perpetuate them for future generations this is achieved by placing our hands on the gravestone lying on top of the grave sometimes a prayer is offered 
Okay? So just to make sure you understand, these people are laying on the graves of those spiritual leaders that they loved and thought really had that going on, and they're trying to get the Holy Spirit from them. And and somehow the Holy Spirit is, is... still in these dead people and the Holy Spirit senses somebody laying on top of the grave uh, and, and just travels through the dirt up into the person and they get a taste of the power that they had. I can't make this up. Okay, I can't, I can't, okay. Um, so do, what does the Bible say about grave sucking? It says nothing about this, okay, absolutely nothing. But they'll point to this passage and say, oh, but this is the way that we do it. And this is what we are supposed to do because there is power, obviously, in Elisha's bones. The thing about this event in, after Elisha's death and, and the resurrection of this guy, did the dead man receive the mantle of Elisha? Did he go on and have the same miraculous powers that Elisha had? Do we ever hear anything about this guy? And that answer would be no. We do not. We do not. Uh, no other mention is made of this man. No, and this miracle is never repeated in any other place. You can't turn to this one passage and go, I have found new doctrine. My goodness, this is great. Let's all go up to Maple Hill and see what we can get. No. No, that's not what we do. And moreover, in the Old Testament, the presence of the Holy Spirit was, was upon specific believers and could be lifted at different times remember david cries out to the lord cast me not away from your presence take not your holy spirit from me don't take it away lord the truth is that is that god did not give us a reason why this is here other than it was an historic event and it was listed for us but we're we're pretty intelligent okay in this day and age, we've got a lot of scholarship that has gone on, and I think we can come up with an application for this, and really it's not too hard to come up with this application. I believe the Lord wants to speak to our hearts through this passage, and this is it. I wonder how many of us will be able to give life after we ourselves are physically dead. I don't mean in this way. I don't mean that if... A dead person or a dead person touched your bones that you would be they would be given life. That's not what I mean. I'm looking at the legacy that we are going to leave when we pass away. There is a legacy of great saints that have gone before us, who have instilled a love for God and a love for Christ and a love for His church within our lives by their example. In this church, there's a long list of those, and we probably have a long list in our own lives. I mean, you have names like Gartrell and Darwin and Smith and League. Those are just, those are just a couple of the long list here that have left us a legacy, a legacy of how they lived, a legacy of what was important in their lives, a legacy of the love for Christ. I mean, I, I you know... When it, for those of you who remember Jeff Smith, after he, he fell and had his accident, here we are, we're, we're in the emergency room, he is going in for emergency surgery, and I'm sitting there and we're talking, and he is talking about the Hawthorne Conservatory, and, and, and off the top of his head, you know, concerned about the figures so that we have the budget right for next year. And I'm saying, Jeff, you know, we can deal with this. He said, no, no, this is important. These are the things of Christ. We, we, have, to, we have to make sure this is Right. 
Okay? How many times when, when Mama Jean, Miss League, was, was ill, did we go up to her house? Did she invite us up for praise and prayer? Come on up here. How many years did, did Ed Gartrell preach the gospel and live the gospel? His nickname was what? The big G, and G is for goodness. Okay? He not only preached the gospel, he lived the gospel. So how have you prepared your children and, and, and your grandchildren? Will they have a godly legacy to follow? Will they look at you and go, I want to live in those footsteps? Have you prepared spiritually to leave them a legacy? What have you done to ensure financially that there will be a spiritual legacy for them? Okay, We continue to build the kingdom after we're gone. What will happen there? When you pass into death, will there be a legacy, a reputation that will lead to life? For others. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 13. And we're going to look at this idea, and it's just one verse. It's just one verse. I mean, you can you can go back and read Hebrews 11. Okay? It's the great hall of faith. You can start in 12 and go all the way through 13. It's all very, very good material. But just this one passage that we're going to look at that is going to challenge us in three particular ways. It's going to call us to remember. It's going to call us to consider. And it's going to call us to imitate. Remember, consider, and imitate. Hebrews 13, verse 7. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Imitate their faith. Okay? Now, in context, the author of Hebrews wants to give us this encouragement to, to follow Christ, to persevere to the end so that we can cross the finish line. I mean, Paul talks about that in his athletic examples. You know, I press on for the upward call of Christ, the prize that lays ahead. He talks about r- the race and you keep your eyes on the finish line. Um, uh, only that guy from Jamaica who is faster than anybody else can look, you know, if you've seen the picture, he's, he's running the 100-yard dash or 100-meter dash and he looks at the camera and, and he smiles like this, and you can see he's two or three strides ahead of everybody else. Okay, Paul says, don't do that. Keep your eye on the prize, because you're running for the prize, and the prize is the upward call of Christ. He says he wants us to do three things, remember, consider, and imitate. And what does he want us to, to consider and remember and imitate? It is the godly Christians and the Christian leaders who have led us in faith, who have led us into the deeper things of Christ, both by what they have taught us and how they have lived, and how they have lived. He wants us to remember and consider, imitate. Imitate, they spoke to you the word of God. Imitate the quality of their lives. Um, Consider the outcome of their way of life. Imitate their faith. And, and what did they produce? Well, the outcome of their faith. What did it produce? Why are we interested in those who have gone before us, those great men and women of faith? In other words, in order to encourage you to cross the finish line, look at those who have gone before you. Now, some of those people may have already passed on uh, up to heaven. Others might still be here. You might be watching somebody like, man, I, I want to be like them when I grow up spiritually. That's my goal. 
Okay, I want to be like them. I see that the way they handle things. I see the way they walk. I see the life that they live. And I'm not there yet, but I want to be there. I want to be like them. So he's asking us here to regard our teachers, not just pastors. You'll notice in that, in that short list I, I gave you, Gar, Reverend Gartrell was the only pastor. The rest were lay people. I mean, Jeff Smith was a lawyer. Um, when I got here, Mama Jean was retired, and, and, and Mr. Darwin, I, I don't know what he did, but those are people that you want to be like, not just the pastors, but all those who have taught you the gospel, all those who showed you the gospel. So remember that Hebrews is so often focused on the theme that Jesus is better. He's better than Moses. He's better than angels. He's better than all those who came before him. Okay? So he says, I want you to keep on believing in Jesus. The, the belief is not just a, a start. You keep on believing so that we can persevere in the faith, so that we can endure to the end. Okay, remember, sanctification is a lifelong process. It goes on and on. It is not perfected until we stand before the Lord. Because we can understand, doesn't matter how old you are, the new challenges arise in the Christian life. Some of those old challenges rear their ugly head again and again. You're trying to get out of them. You think you've got them away from them, and they rear their ugly head once again. So let's look at a couple of these things. First, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. So we're being called to a regard, an ongoing remembrance to those who led us. And that's the spiritual shepherds, the leaders, the pastors in our lives. And there are four things about them that he wants us to remember. They faithfully exercised the ministry of the word. Not their own opinions, but the ministry of the word. Because Randy's opinion is just that. It's an opinion. It is not the word of God. But when we look and we read the word of God, and, and it says very clearly, this is the way God is. This is the way that he wants us to live. And those leaders taught that and expounded upon it. It was not their own ideas. It was the word of God. Ted Gartrell taught the Bible. He taught the Bible. Secondly, they lived consistently with their faith. Consider the outcome of the way of life. They practiced what they preached. I mean, it, it really is it, it, really a, a terrible thing to the church to go and to see somebody preach and to teach it and then to look at their life and their life does not reflect any bit of what they say the word is and what they know to be true in the word. But the author of Hebrews is saying, hey, the guys that went before you, they lived it as well as preached it. Third, it says, remember them. Remember those who led you. They were personally known to them. They were not far off. They were not, you know, just dropped in for a day or two and then left. They lived among the people and taught them and, and so that the people could see their lives. The people heard it on a repeated basis over the course of years. They had a personal relationship with them. And then the, the last one under that, the first one, they've already finished the course. These people are, have passed on. They have lived the good life. They fought the good fight. They have gone to be with Christ. So remember your leaders. And we lived in a, in a day and age where, again, what's it say? Remember those who led you. Those is plural. We're not talking about personality worship. 
We're not talking about having one person that, that you know, I just want to, they're everything. And if they were to fall off the pedestal, your life would go crashing too, okay? We're talking about those in plural that led the Christian life, that taught you. No, it's not just one person, it's many. Secondly, consider the outcome of their way of life. Consider the result of what they taught. Did they live it out? Um, Take careful notes on their life. Take careful notes on how they finished the race. Um, You've got some Christians in this congregation here in in Hebrews that are wavering. They're thinking, oh, we're facing persecution. Maybe I want to go back to Judaism. And he says, no, no, you've got to finish the race. You've got to move forward. You've got to keep the faith. You've got to endure to the end. Look at those who have gone before you. They have crossed the finish line. They have lived out faith. And they have lived it well. He wants you to think about it. He wants you to carefully consider how they lived and how they finished. True Christians. True faith. They will live their lives out. They will not live them perfectly. But they will live their lives out no matter what they face. They will practice what they preach. They will practice what they preach. And here, the last one here. Number three, imitate their faith. Imitate their faith. It doesn't say what? Imitate their life. It says imitate their faith. Imitate their faith. So why does he switch to faith here? Because he understands that the way of life flows from what you believe. It flows from your faith. What you believe informs and shapes your practices. Your doctrine leads to holy living. That's why we study doctrine. That's why we fill our minds with the word of God and the doctrine that is there so that we'll apply it, so that we'll live it out. Doctrine is not just head knowledge. It has to be practical. Your theology shapes your ethics. It shapes the way that you live, the decisions that you make, your worldview. Imitate their faith, because if you imitate their faith, you will imitate their life as well. John Calvin writes about this verse in particular. He says, They rendered a faithful testimony to sound doctrine though their whole li- through their whole lives as well as in death. How do you like that put on your tombstone? He rendered a faithful testimony to sound doctrine through his whole life as well as in his death. That would be just about as good as it could get. But somebody else would have to put that on your tombstone. You couldn't go now and say, I want this on my stone because I want to look good when I'm dead. No, you'd have to have people come and say, this is fitting for this individual. So if you look back, on the faithful leaders in your life and the legacy they left, then you have to begin to question, what kind of legacy am I going to leave? What am I going to leave for those who come after me? What kind of faith are they going to see in my life? What kind of faith are they going to see lived out? Will it be the type that they want to live as well? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, in this this passage, which seems so odd, this passage from 2 Kings, uh, but yet it is an historic event, yet it happened. And it happened to illustrate something, whether it was for Joash and, and to remind him of the promises of the Lord, whether it was 
here for us to remind us of a godly legacy that we are to leave. It is not something that we make an important doctrine off of. It is something that fits in the larger scope of the entire Bible and all the things that you have taught us and all the things that you have laid out for us. And we're challenged today, Lord, to think ahead. Now, when we think ahead, ahead is both tomorrow and 10 years and 20 years down the road about how we are living and are we living in such a way that others will want to live that way as well? Are we being gracious? Are we being compassionate? Are we being solid in what we stand on in the word of God? Are we not willing to compromise on the essentials of your word? But are we willing to be gracious on those things that are not essential? How do we treat those who are not as spiritually mature as we are? Do we give them room to grow and room to err in the same way that others gave us room and allowed us to, to, to help work and figure these things out? Are we encouragers to those who are going to come behind us? Do they see our practices of Bible study and personal prayer and our devotion life? Do they see in us things that they want to emulate and that they desire to have as well? Lord, these are the challenges for us today. What kind of legacy will we leave? Will it be one that follows in the footsteps of Christ? And will it be one that others want to follow as well? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.